if American democracy was on a knife's edge on January 6, 2021, and thereafter, today it is teetering on that knife's edge. Hey, welcome back. Hope you had a delightful holiday. Everything's great. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it is why. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. I am a little scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. But you shouldn't be. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Until after today's show. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates around this fine nation of ours. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us as we continue to try to get caught up with uh, whatever we missed over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, and we try to ease back into all of our current ongoing nightmares. So much fun. So, uh, retire. Hi, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Hi. Retired uh, federal appeals court judge Michael Ludig spent years as a clerk to far-right so-called conservative uh, judges and, uh, well, judge and then Justice Antonin Scalia before becoming a member of Ronald Reagan's White House Counsel's Office and then George H.W. Bush's Department of Justice, where he assisted in the Well, controversial, to say the least, nomination to the high court of now U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ludig was then nominated to the federal appeals court bench himself by George H.W. Bush, where his rulings were frequently compared to Antonin Scalia. He was among the leading so-called feeder Judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals, with more than 40 of his own law clerks eventually going on to clerk with conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Of those, 33 clerked for either Justice Thomas or Justice Justice Scalia. He was considered for the high court himself by both President Bush's and has otherwise been one of the most cited and most conservative judges on the federal bench in modern times until his retirement in 2006, when he then went on to become a corporate lawyer. 
Now, you may remember him uh, from his, at times, halting testimony to the January 6th House Committee last year, but he is widely considered one of the most respected and, yes, conservative judges to serve on the federal bench in modern times in this country. Now, I I don't want to bum you out right at the top of the show. That's what the rest of the show is for. Uh, in- including, by the way, Desi Doyen's first Green News report since returning from our Thanksgiving break. Yay! That'll be nothing but chuckles. But <laughs> if Michael Ludwig is saying stuff like this, I think that America, all of America, conservatives, liberals, progressives, and everything in between and to both the right and the left really ought to be paying attention to what it is that he is saying. Here's Judge Ludwig. Speaking at the Rule of Law Summit in D.C. earlier this month on the, uh, quote, peril that this nation and its form of democracy, as we now know it, now faces as we move into the 2024 presidential election year. If American democracy was on a knife's edge uh, on January 6, 2021 and thereafter, today it is teetering on that knife's edge, uh, which is to say that uh, uh, American democracy uh, is in greater peril today than it's ever been in in American history. Uh, And and the explanation for that uh, escalation in peril, if you want to call it that, in the past uh, two to three years is is obvious. the, uh, the, the president of the United States who instigated that war on democracy and brought American democracy to a knife's edge three years later, having corrupted American democracy, corrupted the rule of law in the interim three years, and uh, made the... Made the Millions and millions and millions of Americans no longer have faith and confidence in our democracy and in our elections. That man, now indicted for his crimes against the United States of America on January 6th, is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. And if you, if the political talking heads uh, can be believed, uh, could well be the next president of the United States of America. So I I said, I think on some television show, I'm so scared when I go on TV still that I I can't even, I don't know what I'm saying at the time, and I certainly can't remember it later. Um, But but, uh, they asked me, well, what would would happen if if Donald Trump uh, were were elected to the presidency again? what, What would... What would that do for American democracy? And I said, uh, Peter, that uh, it would be catastrophic. It would be catastrophic. Democracy is in the greatest peril in American history. We are on a knife's edge. The well-respected, very conservative former federal appeals court judge, an oft-considered Republican U.S. Supreme Court shortlister, Michael Ludig, speaking at a legal conference before Thanksgiving on the perils of a second Donald Trump presidency. 
And now that I've bummed you out right at the top of the show, <laughs> or scared the hell out of you, I don't know, take your pick, I want to under underscore a brief passage from David Kurtz at Talking Points Memo yesterday that I also shared on the show yesterday. But I have a feeling I may need to underscore this uh, for really the, the full next year in this nation, at, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's from his item yesterday headlined, The Rule of Law is the Only Thing that Matters in 2024 which he wrote after the Thanksgiving break as he pondered uh, the fact that, quote, by the time we sit down for Turkey again next year, Donald Trump may be the president-elect for a second time. Uh, wrote Kurtz, the rule of law is on the ballot in 2024, and it trumps every other political and policy consideration. It is the umbrella under which every other issue is addressed. Want to restore abortion rights? Want to openly debate Israel and Palestine? Want to accelerate the energy revolution to head off the worst of climate change? Well, good luck, because if Trump, as promised, harnesses the power of the federal government to attack his perceived political enemies, exact retribution for slights, overturn elections, eviscerate the right to vote, and continue the effort to lock in GOP minority rule, he will break the democratic mechanisms for adjudicating policy preferences, enacting new laws, and enforcing them. Trump, he writes, is promising a fundamental break with the rule of law, and from that will flow a fundamental breakdown in democratic processes and institutions. It is as simple as it is hard to stay at maximum threat level for years on end. If elections don't count, if Trump and the GOP won't accept defeat as an option, if a majority of the electorate can't make its voice heard at the ballot box, then nothing else really matters. It's as stark a choice as the United States has ever faced, writes Kurtz. Now, I am trying to learn why it is that some folks, some folks, yes, on the left, in fact, apparently do not see it the way that Kurtz does or that I do or that apparently uh, Judge Ludwig does. And if you're one of those people, please feel free to drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I would love to hear from you and perhaps uh, we'll share some of your thoughts on a future show. Don't worry, I, I don't need to identify you by name, but I, I would love to hear from you because I really don't understand it. I really I, I'm unclear as to why the entire nation at this point, much less folks on the left, um, are not as concerned as me. I suspect uh, some folks who, who may not uh, see the choice as stark may be under the notion that, hey, well, you know what, Joe Biden, he won last time and Trump is so bad. Trump, Biden will win again, even if I vote for a third party candidate to make a statement or if I stay home next year because Joe Biden is old or something. Well, maybe that that could be. I, I suspect that could be why some liberals and progressives in Argentina thought the same thing earlier this month. A week ago, Sunday, however, some of those folks uh, woke up to a very different reality, at least in their country. As AP reported that night, what many deemed impossible just months ago became reality. Right-wing populist Javier Millet resoundingly won Argentina's presidency. The fiery freshman lawmaker's victory has thrust the country into the unknown 
regarding how extreme his policies will be following a campaign in which he revved a chainsaw to symbolically cut the state down to size. Millet handily beat economic minister Sergio Massa, winning all but three of the nation's 24 provinces. Millet, who is 53 years old, is a libertarian economist. He started to outline some of his planned policies the day after his victory. In a radio interview, he said he would quickly move forward with plans to privatize the state-run media outlets that he received negative coverage from during his campaign. He also said that the state-controlled energy firm should be privatized. Quote, everything that can be in the hands of the private sector will be in the hands of the private sector, he told a Buenos Aires radio station. Millet, a self-described anarcho-capitalist with a disheveled mop of hair, pledged abrupt, severe change. A campaign promise which apparently resonated with Argentines wary of annual inflation soaring above 140 percent in that country and a poverty rate that reached 40 percent. That, by the way, compared to the inflation rate here in the U.S. that everyone is so furious about, which is currently about 3 percent. With unemployment at near all time historic lows. Darn that Joe Biden. Uh, Once in office, Millet has said he would slash government spending, eliminate the central bank, as well as key ministries, including those of health and education. An admirer of former U.S. President Donald Trump, Millet has likewise presented himself as a crusader against the sinister creep of global socialism with plans to purge the government of establishment politicians, to loosen gun controls and sweeping indiscriminate privatization. Quote, the whole world was watching. I am very proud of you. Donald Trump wrote on his social media platform the day after the election. You will turn your country around and truly make Argentina great again. Now, Millet parlayed his television stardom into initially into a seat in the uh, lower house of Congress two years ago in Argentina. His presidential bid was then viewed as a mere sideshow just months ago. Any of this sounding familiar? Some of Malay's positions appear to echo those of more conservative, so-called conservative Republicans in the U.S. For example, he opposes sex education, feminist policies, and abortion, which is legal, at least for now, in Argentina, and he rejects the notion that humans have a role in causing climate change. Because, of course, he does. So that was a week ago Sunday in Argentina, but that's not all. When it comes to the rising tide of authoritarianism and democracy on a knife's edge around the globe right now, And yes, in advance of our own elections next year. This past Wednesday, in what is being described as a shock for Europe, anti-Islam populist and far-right extremist Geert Wilders won a huge victory in Dutch elections in a stunning lurch to the far right for a nation once famed as a beacon of tolerance. The result, AP reports, has sent shockwaves through Europe where far-right ideology is on the rise and puts Wilders in line to lead talks to form the next governing coalition and possibly become the first far-right prime minister 
of the Netherlands. Builders Party for Freedom was forecast to win 37 seats in the 150-seat lower House of Parliament, two more than predicted by an exit poll when voting finished on Wednesday night and more than double the 17 that he won at the last, at the, uh, last election. Political parties are holding separate meetings now to discuss the outcome before what is likely to be an arduous process of forming a new governing coalition. Builder's election program included calls for a referendum on the Netherlands leaving the European Union, a total halt to accepting asylum seekers and migrant pushbacks at Dutch borders. Again, sound familiar? It also advocates the, quote, de-Islamization of the Netherlands. He says he wants no mosques or Islamic schools in the entire country. His victory seems based on his campaign to rein in migration and tackle issues such as cost of living crisis and housing shortages. Voters said, we are sick of it, sick to our stomachs, Builders said, adding that he is now on a mission to end the, quote, asylum tsunami, referring to the migration issue that came to dominate his campaign. Quote, the Dutch will be number one again. Builders said the people must get their nation back. He has used the slogan, make Holland ours again. But Wilders, who with his own uh, wild, blonde, pompadour hairdo, I don't know what it is with these guys on the far right and their big, huge, pompadour, crazy hairdos. It's strangely consistent. He has uh, in the past been labeled a Dutch version of Donald Trump. But he first must form a coalition government before he can take the reins of power. And that, uh, maybe the good news, will be tough as mainstream parties, for now, appear reluctant to join forces with him and his party. But the size of his victory strengthens his hand in any negotiations. The uh, closest party to Wilders in the election was an alliance of the center-left Labor Party and Green Left, which was forecast to win about 25 seats. But his uh, that, that compared to 37 seats uh, by Wilder's, uh, Wilder's party. But uh, its leader of that uh, center-left coalition, Franz Timmermans, has made clear that Wilder's should not count on a coalition with them. Quote, we will never form a coalition with parties that pretend that asylum seekers are the source of all misery, Timmerman said, vowing to defend Dutch democracy. Good. The historic victory came one year after the win of Italian Premier Giorgio Maloney, whose brother of Italy's roots, her party, uh, were steeped in nostalgia, literally, for fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. So it's all going well in Europe. Then there's Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who boasts of turning Hungary into an illiberal state and has similarly harsh stances on migration and EU institutions. He, of course, was quick to congratulate Wilders. Quote, the winds of change are here. Congratulations, Orban said. Winds of change. Those are some pretty gusty winds, it seems to me, these days. And they're sweeping across Europe, yeah. it looks like. Storm clouds, in fact. Now, longtime listeners uh, may recall that I similarly warned about Donald Trump's chances of winning back in 2016. 
uh, when most in the media at the time, and I know that a lot of people are forgotten by now, but uh, most in the media and really across the nation in the run-up to 2016, sort of felt like the idea that Trump would actually win the presidency over Hillary Clinton to be absolutely laughable and ridiculous. Of course he was not going to win. Now, I was not really laughing at the time. Uh, um, uh, and among the things that led me to uh, sort of swim upstream that year against um, conventional wisdom was... Uh, well, a few things. My knowledge of just how brittle our electoral system is from the election laws to the voting systems. But another thing that sort of set off alarm bells for me, which we tried to underscore at the time on the show, was the lurch to the right in, uh, of all places, Great Britain with the passage of Brexit back then in the run up to the 2016 presidential election here. You know, that was most had seen uh, the passage of Brexit as impossible at the time. It's just a folly from these extreme right wingers. Uh, you know, Britain won't really vote in favor of this. So they thought it was impossible up until it wasn't. And in fact, the passage of Brexit was probably the thing that worried me most in the lead up to Trump's eventual win. I remember seeing that as a very scary sign. And so now I am pointing with big red letters and sirens uh, toward elections like those in Argentina and the Netherlands and, of course, Hungary and, and uh, Italy, but uh, Argentina and the Netherlands in particular over the past week or two, hoping that others are taking similar notice of this. We are a year out still, of course, and Trump's own Republican nomination to the job is not even settled. And normally I would not be discussing presidential politics, presidential election politics this far out from an election at all. But given the stakes here, um, sorry, but I don't think we can begin doing so talking about it early enough. And if you need one other wake-up call today uh, from Gary Fields at AP over the weekend, campaigning in Iowa, Donald Trump said he was prevented during his presidency from using the military to quell violence in primarily Democratic cities and states. Calling New York City and Chicago, quote, crime dens, the frontrunner for the 2024 presidential nomination told his audience, quote, the next time I'm not waiting. We did that. We don't have to wait any longer. He's not waiting. He's not waiting for what? He's not waiting to unleash the military on American cities. Trump has not spelled out precisely how he might use the military during a second term, although he and his advisors have suggested that they would have wide latitude to call up units. Again, call up units against Americans. While deploying the military regularly within the country's borders would be a departure from tradition, Fields writes, the former president already has signaled an aggressive agenda if he wins, from mass deportations to travel bans imposed on certain Muslim-majority countries to rounding up the homeless into massive camps, sort of concentrating them together in those camps. 
And while it may be, it may not be tradition to uh, unleash the military in the U.S. against Americans. In fact, little actually stops an American president from deploying the U.S. military domestically. As Fields notes, a law first cra- uh, crafted in the nation's infancy would give Trump, as commander-in-chief, almost unfettered power to do so, according to both military and legal experts. The Insurrection Act allows presidents to call on reserve or active-duty military units to respond to unrest in the states, an authority that is, and this is critical, not reviewable by the courts. In other words, if the president wants to do it, he can just do it, and little, if anything, would get in his way of doing it. It's not reviewable by the courts. Nobody can go to the court and sue and say, hey, the president can't do that. The president can do that. The president generally does not do that, but that's based on tradition, and we know how much respect that Donald Trump has for tradition in this country, right? Joseph Nunn, a national security expert with the Brennan Center for Justice, told AP, quote, The principal constraint on the president's use of the Insurrection Act is basically political. That presidents don't want to be the guy who sent tanks rolling down Main Street. There's not really much in the law to stay the president's hand, he said. And of course, I'm thinking as I'm reading that, that, yeah, actually, I think Donald Trump would like to be seen as the guy who uh, is sends tanks rolling down Main Street. Yes, at the very minimum, he would enjoy the theatricality and the show. And the dominance and the yes. power. Yes. In, in uh, 1792, just four years after the Constitution was ratified, Congress passed the Insurrection Act. Nunn said it's an amalgamation of different statutes that were enacted between then and the 1870s, a time when there was little in the way of local law enforcement. He said, quote, it's a it is a law that in many ways was created for a country that doesn't exist anymore. It is also one of the most substantial exceptions to the Posse Comitatus Act, which generally prohibits the use uh, of the military for law enforcement purposes. So you can use the, uh, the military for law enforcement purposes under the Posse Comitatus Act, but if you declare the insurrection law, apparently all you need to do, the Insurrection Act, all you need to do is have the military uh, call for whatever uh, chaos is going on to, uh, to disperse, and if they don't, why, there you go. Send in the tanks. Trump has spoken openly about his plans should he win the presidency, including using the military at the border and in cities that are struggling with violent crime. His plans also have included using the military against foreign drug cartels, a view, by the way, that has been echoed by other Republican primary candidates, for example, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor. You may recall that we discussed that after the uh, the recent GOP presidential primary debates where both Ron DeSantis and uh, the latest GOP sweetheart, Nikki Haley, both suggested with little or no pushback from either the other candidates on the stage or more most notably from the moderators that yes they would send the US military into Mexico to fight drug cartels which of course would be going to war against Mexico 
And you would think, you would think that would invite a follow-up question or two from the debate moderators, but apparently not. Apparently, maybe that's one of the reasons why Republicans don't seem to be particularly troubled about Vladimir Putin marching into his neighboring country of Ukraine. Because, hey, sounds like a good idea. We could do that to Mexico, couldn't we? Now, on a side note uh, today, uh, in case Republicans come to their senses once primary voting starts and decide that they would prefer someone who'd be more difficult, most likely, for Joe Biden to defeat next year, the uh, the Koch networks, Charles Koch's networks, uh, network Americans for Prosperity, the AFP Super PAC has now decided to, for the first time, to endorse a, uh, a Republican pres- uh, presidential candidate in the primary. They have decided to endorse Nikki Haley on Tuesday and to unleash their tens of millions of dollars. That's kind of under lowballing it. It's more like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and a huge uh, boots on the ground organization, ground organization in all 50 states. They're decided to unleash all of that behind her, behind Nikki Haley. Will it make a difference uh, with Trump still leading by, I don't know, 30, 40 points, whatever? I don't know. But the right wing Coke funded groups that are putting together Project 2025, the plan for the next Republican president, theoretically, it's a plan for no matter. Uh, who that Republican president turns out to be uh, includes, among other things, invoking the Insurrection Act on day one. And those folks have a whole lot of money to spend on their favorite Republican next year. And by the way, in recent head-to-head polling, uh, Nikki Haley is doing better against Joe Biden than either Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. That's why I say if Republicans come to their senses... Uh, I think Nikki Haley would be much more difficult for Biden to beat, at least according to the polls, at least according to the data that we have currently. Attempts to invoke the Insurrection Act and use the military for domestic policing, the AP's uh, fields adds optimistically here, I think, uh, would likely elicit pushback from the Pentagon, where the new chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is General Charles Q. Brown, He was one of the eight members of the Joint Chiefs who signed a memo to military personnel in the aftermath of the January 6, 2021 attacks on the U.S. Capitol. That memo emphasized that the oaths they took and and, uh, it, it cited those oaths and called the events of that day, which were intended to stop certification of Joe Biden's victory over Trump, quote, sedition and insurrection. And I say that uh, Fields cites that optimistically because uh, though the tenure of the joint chief chair spans presidential terms, so C.Q. Brown would, in theory, still be the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the military under whoever the next uh, serves in the next term of the presidency. Um, I, I suspect that pushing him out, if it was Donald Trump, forcing him to resign in protest for any particular reason to then be replaced by someone more amenable to Trump's authoritarianism, I suspect that wouldn't be all that hard. Trump and his party retain wide support among those who served in the military, according to AP's in-depth survey of more than 94,000 voters nationwide. It's called their VoteCast survey. They found that 
Almost 60% of U.S. military veterans voted for Trump in the 2020 presidential election. And in the 2022 midterms, 57% of military veterans supported Republican candidates. And it's not as if uh, Trump wouldn't be able to, you know, cite precedent for unleashing the U.S. military for domestic purposes in order to offer a sort of a patina of legitimacy for all of this, because American presidents have done it before. In fact, they have issued a total of 40 proclamations invoking that law. So, you know, it's not that unusual. All the other presidents didn't. Why, why shouldn't Donald Trump? Lyndon Johnson invoked it three times in Baltimore, Chicago, and Washington in response uh, to unrest in cities after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. back in 1968. Presidents Johnson and John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower all used the law to protect activists and students desegregating schools. Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas, to protect black students integrating Central High School after the state's governor activated the National Guard to keep the students out. So Donald Trump wouldn't really be doing much different than that, right? Just keeping the peace. George H.W. Bush was the last president to use the Insurrection Act in response to riots out here in Los Angeles in 1992 after the acquittal of the white police officers who beat black motorist Rodney King. Quote, there are a lot of institutional checks and balances in our country that are pretty well developed legally, and it'll make it hard for a president to do to just do something randomly out of the blue, said Joseph Nunn, a national security expert at Brennan Center for Justice, who specializes in U.S. defense strategy and the use of military force. He said, but, quote, Trump is good at developing a semi-logical train of thought that might lead to a place where there's enough mayhem, there's enough violence and legal murkiness to call in the military. And that sounds just about right, doesn't it? In, the, in, in discussing using the uh, invoking the Insurrection Act on day one, they are already saying, well, we're going to do it in response to protests against Donald Trump's victory. They're already assuming that's going to be the case and that they're going to unleash the U.S. military to do it. And, you know, after all, Donald Trump is pretty good at just uh, developing a semi-logical train of thought so that there, he creates enough mayhem and violence and legal murkiness to do whatever the hell it is that he wants. Yeah, he can create the mayhem. He can create the atmosphere of people going out to protest. Remember the very peaceful women's march? Trump would require the merest, thinnest justification yep. to have called out the uh, military against even peaceful protests. William Banks, a Syracuse University law professor and expert in national security law, said a military officer is not forced to follow unlawful orders. But, he added, there is a big thumb on the scale in favor of the president's interpretation of whether the order is lawful. You'd have... Uh, a really big road to hoe, and you would have a big fuss inside the military if you chose not to follow a presidential order. It's a presidential order. It couldn't be an unlawful order. It's coming from the commander-in-chief. Brennan Center's Joe Nunn said, uh, quote, Members of the military are legally obliged to disobey an unlawful order. 
But at the same time, that is a lot to ask of the military because they are also obliged to obey orders. And the punishment, he said, for disobeying an order that turns out to be lawful is your career is over. And you may well be going to jail for a very long time. The stakes for them in the military are extraordinarily high, he said. So I would suggest the stakes for all of us are extraordinarily high at this point, potentially catastrophic and on a knife's edge, as Judge Ludick is trying to warn. So, hope you had a lovely, restful, peaceful Thanksgiving, but please forgive me if I keep sounding the alarm just about as loudly as I know how between now and next November, because I think we must. And when I say we, I don't just mean me and Desi. I mean you as well. Take this seriously this time around. I know we didn't in 2016, I know we did in 2020, but remember, Joe Biden barely won. It was about 50, about uh, 43,000 votes. Uh, if about 43,000 votes had flipped from blue to red in, you know, about four or five swing states, we would be living on, in a very different world right now. And the world we're living in now is not great. But please take this seriously. And again. Sorry to keep sounding that alarm. Sorry to keep driving you crazy about it, but I wouldn't if I didn't think it was that important. All right, let's take a quick break here, and we will uh, come back with a, a look at a president using uh, other wartime powers, but for good instead of evil. <laughs> what a concept. To help save humanity rather than, well, whatever it is that Donald Trump hopes to do to it. Uh, that and Desi Doyne's Green News Report are all straight ahead as world leaders descend on Dubai and the United Arab Emirates this week to hold a, a conference. I think a two week conference, if yes. I'm not mistaken, two week conference on, of all things, climate change and how to reduce deadly emissions from burning fossil fuels right in the capital city of the UAE petrostate. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we'll find out shortly. All of that and maybe more still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Jesse Doyen really, really wanted to play that song for the bumper music here, didn't you, for some reason? Yes, it's a great song. Yeah, all right, it's a great song. And it's the <laughs> 1980s, and I'm rolling up my sleeves, and I'm getting a... Uh, pop your collar, man. Hey, a pop in the collar. Welcome back <laughs> to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, uh, as long as we're talking about the heat of the moment. 
and presidents invoking wartime declarations, as I said, uh, is being done for good instead of evil by Joe Biden, though Fox News is certainly hoping to paint it as incredibly evil. Uh, they issued an all-caps alert on this just before the Thanksgiving holiday last week. President Biden invoked a Cold War-era law in what Fox News describes as a surprising move to pour, as they report it, taxpayer funds into domestic manufacturing of electric heat pumps, an alternative to gas-powered residential furnaces. So uh, it's sort of a new technology, or at least uh, it will be in this country if uh, the uh, president does what he is talking about doing here, what Fox News is alarming people about. In a joint announcement with the White House, the Department of Energy said the federal government would award a historic $169 million for nine projects across 15 sites nationwide in an effort to accelerate electric heat pump manufacturing the significant level of funding was made possible after Biden utilized the 1950 Defense Production Act, or DPA, to increase domestic production of green energy technologies. Why now, does Fox News hate domestic manufacturing well, jobs? Well, we'll get to that, but can you explain what, for people who don't know, the difference between, so if you have a heat pump in your house, you don't have to have a heater, a traditional heater, or a traditional uh, air conditioner? Right. So it takes the place of a traditional gas boiler or oil boiler mm -hmm. or air electric resistance heater, depending upon where you are in the country. Um, and these are the new super efficient all-electric heat pumps. These are not the heat pumps that people remember from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm -hmm. They've been uh, refined quite a bit. So heat pumps are super efficient because they work like um, your fridge or your air conditioner. The machine itself does not generate the heat itself. Right. Um, it just moves it around, basically. It uh, moves it from outside to where it's needed so it can both heat and cool a home. It can push the warm air out of the home in the summer and draw it inside during the winter. Without having to burn fossil fuels right. so to do it's, it. It's more efficient because, you know, like a gas, a natural gas boiler can only produce as much heat as the energy contained in the fuel being burned, whereas uh, an electric heat pump doesn't do that. It just moves it around and, and pulls that heat from wherever it's needed and pushes it to wherever it's needed. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said, quote, getting more American-made electric heat pumps on the market will help families and businesses save money with efficient heating and cooling technology. This is Fox News quoting Granholm. These investments will create thousands of high-quality, good-paying manufacturing jobs and strengthen America's energy supply chain while creating healthier indoor spaces through homegrown clean energy technologies. Well, no wonder Fox hates it. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> Who wants clean indoor air? That saves money, that creates yes. jobs, that makes healthier indoor spaces. Today's uh, quote, today's Defense Production Act funds the uh, funds for heat pump manufacturing show that President Biden is treating climate change as the crisis it is, said John Podesta, White House clean energy czar. These awards will grow domestic manufacturing, create good paying jobs and boost American competitiveness in industries of the future. 
And they also quote Ali Zaidi, who serves as Biden's national climate advisor. He said the president was, quote, using his wartime emergency powers under the Defense Production Act to turbocharge U.S. manufacturing of clean technologies and strengthen our energy security. So I'm, you know, like a third of the way through the story and Fox is really having a hard time finding something to hate about this yet. Uh, under the Biden administration's actions, the DOE will send millions of dollars to companies like Copeland, Honeywell, uh, Mitsubishi, York International. The projects will advance manufacturing of industrial, commercial and residential heat pump technology. But uh, oh, here we go. Ben Lieberman, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, told Fox News, quote, this is absolutely shameful corporate welfare. But we're to believe that because it's for the sake of climate change, all is well. I think that's ridiculous. Well, is it ridiculous, Desi Doyen? No, it is not. Um, <laughs> when you think about, for example, Norway, um, Norway, two thirds of the population. And in I don't, Norway, by the way, think about <laughs> Norway. But go ahead. Two thirds of households in Norway use all electric heat pumps because they find them cheaper to use and they're super efficient, like I said, and they apparently like them just fine. In fact, there are several stories you can read if you look up on Norway's fascination with heat pumps. You'll find that they'll say, oh, we walk around and t-shirts in our homes in winter. I was going to say, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty cold up there in Norway. It does. So, so at least might... it works for heat. Does it work as well for air conditioning as well? Apparently it works just great and it's more efficient and even has a lower carbon footprint no matter what fuel source is mm. used for the energy, for the electricity. Ben Lieberman continued to complain, quote, of all the Biden administration's claimed climate emergency declarations, this may be the craziest of them all. The government has no rule, role in tilting the balance in favor of one energy source over another. That's clearly what's happening here. Now, did I miss Ben Lieberman uh, complaining about decades of billions of dollars given by taxpayers to the fossil fuel industry or something? Did I miss those complaints when the, the, uh, the government has been doing exactly that for decades and decades and, frankly, centuries? of tilting the balance in favor of one energy source, namely fossil fuels. The action comes less than two months after the, after the DOE issued new regulations targeting targeting traditional home gas-powered furnaces as part <laughs> of its climate agenda and broad effort to curb greenhouse gas emissions. DOE's finalized regulations, which are slated to go into effect in 2028, specifically require furnaces to achieve an annual fuel utilization efficiency of 95%, meaning manufacturers would only be allowed to sell furnaces that convert at least 95% of fuel into heat within six years. Wow. So they have six years to help Americans save money and be healthier and waste less energy because a 95 percent heat conversion rate is not what you're getting right now you're wasting a lot of heat if that's the kind of heater that you well, have this, and, and this, i just want to know yeah. that what fox news and all of the competitive enterprise institute what they're really going after is ensuring that the money in your wallet goes to the fossil fuel industry and nobody else well, I'm just reading this and I'm thinking, well, you'll you'll be healthier. You'll have uh, more efficient appliances. Uh, I just it sounds like tyranny to me. 
And by the way, they aren't taking anybody's gas furnace. They're not going to come no. in and take you and order you to get one of, of these. Of course not. These, That's a lie. These rules would simply apply to uh, new, new ones. furnaces that were on the market uh, to purchase if you decide to. Quote, energy security is a top priority for AGA. That would be American Gas Association, uh, according to its president and CEO, Karen Harbert. Quote, we are deeply disappointed to see the Defense Production Act, which is intended as a vital tool for advancing national security against serious outside threats, being used as an instrument to advance a policy agenda contradictory to our nation's strong energy position. Okay. Biden previously has invoked the DPA to accelerate domestic critical mineral production and to pause tariffs on Chinese solar panel imports, claiming that climate claiming that climate change is a national emergency. Because, of course, it is. In addition to consumer furnaces, over the last several months, the DOE has unveiled new standards for a wide variety of other appliances, including gas stoves, clothes washers, refrigerators, and air conditioners. According to the DOE, its past and planned appliance regulations will save Americans $570 billion and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by more than 2.4 billion metric tons over the next 30 years. Well, no wonder the Fox Republican news outlet is absolutely furious. Saving Americans $570 billion and reducing tons of billions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions to save lives? Outrageous. <laughs> Green News Report is next, right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. So what are they at now? Uh, COP28, right? Yes, the 28th Conference of Parties. And I feel like we've been covering this since COP13. Yes. And actually, I think we have. I think so, yeah. I can't believe we're all the way up to 28. Uh, Anyway, if you have no idea what we're talking about, (laughs) uh, here you go. It's our latest Green News Report. We must reverse course. UN Secretary General warns world is far off track to avoid catastrophic warming. Annual U.N. Climate Conference, COP28, gets underway in oil-rich Dubai. Plus, International Energy Agency warns fossil fuel industry faces a reckoning. All of those reckonings and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We're simply inflating the lifeboats while breaking the horse. Breaking the horse. Oars. He was talking about oars. Lifeboat, oars. Well, at least we're not breaking the horse. This is your Green News Report. I'm gonna soak up the sun. 
Okay, Desi Doyen, no wonder they never get anything done at these climate conferences. Nobody can understand what the U.N. Secretary General is actually saying. <laughs> well, not true. Most people understand. Sure. Well, we're back. What do you got for us today? Well, first, while we were out, a global temperature milestone. On Friday, November 17th, for the first time since record-keeping began in the mid-1800s, the planet's average air temperature hit 2 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. Uh That's according to Europe's Climate Service. It's an indicator of just how quickly the planet is warming. But climate scientists say we have not passed the 2 degrees Celsius target in the Paris Climate Agreement which is defined by staying above 2 degrees Celsius for many years on end. So we went above 2 degrees, but just for a day... So there's still time to roll it all back. Uh, That's the idea. Currently, humanity's use of fossil fuels has warmed the planet 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But that is little comfort. The United Nations 2023 Emissions Gap Report covers the gap between countries' pledges to cut their fossil fuel emissions versus what's actually required to meet the Paris targets. If every country achieves their targets, the planet is on track to heat up by nearly three degrees Celsius by the end of this century. That's if they meet the targets? Yes. Scientists say warming on that scale would push planetary systems past a number of catastrophic tipping points, like the collapse of polar ice sheets and the potential shutdown of vital ocean currents. I'm starting to think we're in big, big trouble. A different report from the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative warns that global warming of two degrees Celsius would trigger catastrophic ice loss with, quote, extensive, long-term, and essentially irreversible melting of Earth's ice sheets and glaciers and would acidify the polar oceans. Who's that from? The International Cryosphere Climate Initiative. Emphasis on cry. So it matters that the United Nations Climate Change Conference begins in Dubai this week. Called COP28 for short, the massive conference of parties will hammer out key mechanisms for implementing the Paris Climate Agreement. COP28 is already one of the most controversial climate summits because it's hosted by the United Arab Emirates and the president of its state oil company. He has said that reducing fossil fuels is, quote, inevitable, but on Monday, The BBC revealed leaked internal documents showing the UAE plans to use the climate conference to privately pitch new oil and gas developments to foreign governments. Who would have thought holding a climate conference in a petrostate would have such results? It's expected to be a contentious conference. Multiple countries want clear language calling for a phase out of fossil fuels versus the fossil fuel industry's push for a phase down accompanied by costly carbon capture of their climate climate warming emissions. Which doesn't work. Yeah, critics say that would allow the oil and gas industry to continue polluting indefinitely. And a new international agency report warned the fossil fuel industry to drop carbon capture technology as, quote, an illusion that will require inconceivable amounts of energy. The report found the oil and gas industry invests only 1% of its capital in clean energy, despite $3 trillion in average annual revenue. The IEA says there are only two options left for oil and gas companies, transition 
or disappear. Other goals at the conference include reaching an agreement on implementation of the Loss and Damage Fund, in which rich countries, primarily responsible for causing the climate crisis, provide funding and assistance to developing countries, already bearing the brunt of extreme weather disasters. Also, reaching an agreement to triple global renewable electricity capacity by 2030. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said leaders at COP28 must, quote, plot a course for ending fossil fuels with a time limit compatible with the Paris Agreement. The emissions gap is more like an emissions canyon, a canyon littered with broken promises, broken lives and broken records. Leaders must drastically up their game now with record ambition, record action and record emissions reductions. Leaders can take the can any further. We are out of road. Out of road, out of time, out of luck. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. If I could turn back the hands of time. Pope Francis was uh, supposed to speak on Saturday at COP28 to be the first pope uh, to do uh, to speak at the U.N. Climate Conference. But he has canceled his trip uh, under doctor's orders. Apparently, he is trying to um, uh, come back from lung inflammation and a Mm. uh, case of flu, recovering from flu. So sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. He has been a great champion. For, uh, yes, for the climate crisis. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or want to give it a listen or share it with someone you know, love, or hate, you can do so at bradblog.com for free. No paywall there. Thanks to those of you who have signed up uh, as a uh, recurring donor. Uh, or just a one-time donation at bradblog.com slash donate. We couldn't do it without you. And now's a great time. Oh, they tell me it's Giving Tuesday. Ah, yes. Please do. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Till we see you here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. If I could turn back the hand of time. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day that an explosion at the coal mine in Mariana in Washington County, Pennsylvania, claimed the lives of 154 miners. It was one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. mining history. The Mariana Mine was on the Pittsburgh Coal Seam, one of the richest coal deposits in the country. The mine was operated by the Pittsburgh Buffalo Coal Company. It was considered by many to be a model operation. The company houses that surrounded the mine were made of yellow brick, had hot and cold running water, and electric lights. This set them apart from other mining homes of the day. By the early 1920s, 90% of all mining homes were wood-framed, and less than 20% had electricity. Yet even though Mariana was considered a model, disaster still struck. 
Mine Inspector Harry Lewitt had been on site for two days leading up to the disaster. On Saturday morning, he had just left a mine shaft. According to newspaper reports, he found the mine in, quote, perfect condition. Then, shortly after 11 a.m., came a horrific explosion that left experts puzzled. It was believed that a vein of natural gas caused the deadly blast. Only one man, Fred Ellinger, was rescued from the mine. He gave a harrowing account of what happened to the Washington Observer. He said, quote, I was working at laying brick in one of the entries, and the first thing I knew, a terrible explosion took place, which threw me some distance. My two buddies were also tossed some distance away. I heard them for a while, then all was quiet. Ellinger was rescued, but 154 other men were not. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.